Funerals are a very important part of pastoral ministry, as you can imagine. Being able to come alongside a family in a time of loss, sometimes it'll vary from just helping them make arrangements, just walking them through, to planning the funeral service, to carrying out the service, to being at the graveside, and then the care that comes uh, after, and just, it's a big, important part of pastoral ministry. And what you find is that through the years, you, if you stay in a place long enough, you'll actually begin to build rapport with funeral directors and funeral homes. In fact, to the point where you begin to uh, decide who you like to work with more than others. And so then if someone comes to you and says, Pastor, I'm thinking about making arrangements, or they're in the midst of the situation where the loss has occurred, and they say, you know, who would you recommend? Then I feel more comfortable to recommend certain people because of the experience that I've had with them. Well, funeral directors know that. And so they see uh, the pastoral role as pretty significant to their business. And so they want to have good relationship with the pastor because they know that not everybody asks the pastor who he would recommend, but some do. And they want to make sure that if that question is asked, then, you know, they're right at the top of the list. So I won't tell you who my favorite is, but if you ask me after, I will. Because if I say it here, it will go all over the world to the millions who listen to me every week, and I don't really feel comfortable to put that out there. But on this one particular occasion a few years back, I was doing a funeral here, and it was a funeral home that I hadn't used before, or we hadn't used before. I wasn't familiar with them at all. And so the director came up to me with his little group, and he said, introduced himself, and he said, I, I don't think we've ever done a funeral here. And I said, well, I don't recall meeting you in my time, and And so he said, I understand that such and such funeral home is one that you like to work with the most. I'm thinking, oh, word gets out there. I guess it's kind of like your kids. Mom likes me better than you, right? I don't know. And so they they were going through great lengths to impress me. So tell me, what does that group usually do that makes the experience so much better? What's the normal process? What, What can we do that they do that will help this be as best experience as it can be. And they were almost at a point of being pathetic. And I thought, I'm going to have some fun with this. (laughs) And so I said, well, you know, such and such funeral home, while I'm conducting the service, they take my vehicle. They have it cleaned. They take care of it. And then they bring it back and they put it in the funeral procession so that when I'm finished the service, I walk out, my car is there, it's shiny, clean, and and I just drive off with the procession. Well, they started looking at each other. We've never heard of that before. But we can do it. We can do it, right? We can do it. Yeah, yeah. If you did this and we did that, yeah, 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 we can make that work. Pastor, we can do that too. If they can do it, we can do it. All we need are your keys. And I said, guys, I'm just kidding you. Really? Yeah. But we were willing to do it. I said, oh, I know you were. But I was just kidding you. I was just having fun with you. Just relax and take care of the family and take care of things, and everything will be all right. 
how things are usually done creates an expectation. If you've had an experience, then there's an expectation that that experience will repeat itself if you're in that same environment and context again. And so we have expectations based on past experiences, on how things have usually happened in a particular context before. And so I want to talk to you about that whole idea of what usually happens. And we've been tracking through this series that, for the most part, we're really wrapping up today. And we've been reminded on many occasions over the last six weeks that the value system of the kingdom of God is opposed to the value system of the world. In other words, what Jesus taught about the kingdom of God is not how people usually prioritize their lives. It's not how things usually happen. We've seen the Messiah who's predicting that he's going to be rejected by the religious elite, the elders, the, the, the top officials of Israel, while at the same time this uneducated fisherman recognizes and declares that he's the Messiah. This is not usual. We've had the Messiah declaring, I'm going to be victorious. I'm going to be glorified. But it's not going to come through the normal means. I'm going to be humiliated, and I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to die. It's not usual. We have the faithful followers of Jesus who are thinking, hey, if we're followers of Jesus, this is going to work out good for us. And Jesus says to them, no, you need to understand you're not just going to be esteemed and protected from hardship because you follow me. You're going to have to bear your own cross. You're going to have to deny yourself, and you're going to have to follow me in my footsteps of humble submission, obedience, and surrender. It's not usual. We've heard Jesus teach that whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for him will find it. It's the opposite. It's unusual. We've heard Jesus teach that whoever wants to become great must become a servant. Whoever aspires to be first must be the least. And the point of all of what he's been teaching them on this crossroads that we've been following is this. There is nothing usual about the kingdom of God. It's not about what's usual. And so today we're going to continue down this crossroad with Jesus and we will see Jesus putting these words, what he has been teaching in these previous five passages that we've looked at, he's now putting them into action and he's demonstrating for all of them the truth of what these things mean as he's finally arriving in Jerusalem to lay down his life. Even the very way Jesus entered into Jerusalem is a testimony to his teaching of how the values of the world different from the values of the kingdom of God and what is expected of Jesus' followers if they're going to identify with him. Now, the main emphasis of this sermon today is simply this. If you desire to make a difference in this world, if you desire to make a difference in this world, you must choose to be different than this world. If you want to make a difference in this world, you have to choose to be different than this world. And Jesus brings all of that together for us this morning. Let's take a look at Matthew 2, or sorry, 21, 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. 
untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, the crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This passage, and you've heard me speak about this before, is considered a parousia passage. And parousia simply means arrival. It's an arrival passage. And a parousia event usually, usually marked the arrival of royalty or a VIP. And there are some usual activities. There are some usual events. There are some usual responses that accompanied the arrival of royalty and VIPs. And while what we will refer to here as the triumphal entry follows the same pattern as a normal parousia, it becomes clear when you begin to unpack it that Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem demonstrates a very different priorities than were usually observed. And so we're going to start this morning by talking about what usually happened. When a person of royalty or a VIP came to a city, the following three brief categories outline what would would happen. First is the means of transport. In this particular context at this time, most people walked wherever they went, right? It used to be said, you know, if you were poor, everybody who was poor had a horse, and if you were rich, you had a car. Now everybody has a car, and if you're rich, you have a horse, right? I mean, the world is different. Well, in this particular context, most of the people walked everywhere they went, kind of like your parents, uphill in both directions. They walked everywhere they went. But there were exceptions. Royalty, leaders, the wealthy, high-profile people. And so during a parousia, the focal point of the entourage was that VIP, was that royal. And typically, they would be riding a nice horse, Because the horse was a symbol of power, authority, and victory. And a few other high-ranking officials might flank them on horseback as well, but most of the people in the entourage would be on foot. The royal, or VIP, was positioned at the front of the entourage in the position of honor. And so they led the procession on horseback into the city. The horse carrying the royal person or the VIP was well-groomed, as you can imagine. Wore an ornamental saddle, a decorative saddle blanket. The reins and bridle were special. The decorative headpiece would have been, uh, you know, on the horse's head. It had a manicured mane and tail. I mean, it was just this beautiful animal that was beautifully ornamented. Because pageantry was a priority during a parousia. The second thing I want us to see is the traveling, are the traveling companions. 
most VIPs traveled with a large contingent as a demonstration of strength and power and wealth. Often high-ranking military officials would flank the VIP or the royal, and a sizable representation of the royal's army would also march in the procession as a sign of military might. Mixed in, there might be some other royal subjects that maybe they're on a horse-drawn cart or in a chariot, or maybe they're being carried on covered platforms on the shoulders of the servants. There would be a large number of royal servants to attend to every need that might arise. And then third, there would be the announcement. When the VIP neared the destined city, his trumpeters would announce his pending arrival. The VIP was the focus of the entry. His name would be announced by the loyal subjects, followed by shouting out of his accomplishments. It was a moment of great arrogance and pride. The city officials, politically elite, the social elite, the religious elite, would come out from the city to meet the royal, to meet the VIP in advance of entering the city for the purpose of escorting him inside. They would bow in respect. They would offer up speeches of praise and gratitude, acknowledging his accomplishments. They would roll out a ceremonial carpet at the city gate and have the inhabitants of the city dressed in white robes, wreaths on their heads, giving a royal welcome to the city. And finally, the entourage would be escorted to the seat of power in the city to be received as a guest by those of highest ranking in the city. This is what usually happened in a parousia. But I want to talk to you about what actually happened. Now, as I've previously stated, while Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem follows the same pattern as a parousia, it becomes clear very quickly that Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem demonstrates very different priorities than what was usually observed. If you will... This is a poor man's parousia. It's a poor man's parousia. Let's start with the means of transportation. Because Matthew is writing primarily to Jewish Christians, he provides more details of the connection of this event to Old Testament prophecy than the other gospel writers include in their accounts of it. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. We're told that he sent two disciples on, a, on an errand. I said to Pastor Mark this week after his sermon last week, in light of the fact that James and John wanted the left and the right, I wonder if they were the ones sent on the errand as punishment. Just saying, right? <laughs> Who knows? Two on an errand to fetch this donkey and her colt from a local owner. And Jesus said, listen, if they ask you what you're doing, if they're trying to stop you from taking the animals, just tell them the Lord needs it. In other words, this, this is for God. We're doing this for God, and it'll all be okay. And so they went, and they, and they did it. Matthew tells us that this takes place to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey or a colt, the foal of a donkey. What, what basically Zechariah is, is saying and what Matthew is pointing us to here is this. Jerusalem, your king is arriving. Your king is arriving. But his arrival is not usual. He is lowly. 
And he's meek. Well, what does that mean? It means he's humble. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's patient. He's riding on a beast of burden, not a decorative war horse. There's no prestige in that. There's no saddle. There's no riding blanket. In fact, some of them take off their outer cloaks and they put it on the animal so that Jesus has something to ride on. But that moment when Jesus mounted up on that colt, he separated himself from the others in the crowd. He's now the only one riding in the midst of all who are walking. And it's a visual sign. He's now revealing to them that he was Israel's Messiah. And they know the prophecies and they're seeing it play out in front of them. He's fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. Well, up until now, he keeps telling everybody, just shh, keep it quiet. Don't talk about it. Don't, don't tell people. But now, this very act makes it a very public truth. And he chooses to ride. Not at the front of the group. I want you to see this. He's not leading the procession. He's right in the middle. It says there are people in front of him, and there are people behind them. And he's right in the middle. He's among them. And as I read that, I thought, yes, this is so symbolic of the incarnation. God among us. God coming in the midst of his people. God, God being one of us. He's not in the front taking all of the attention. He's right in the middle. He's surrounded. He's in the midst of his people, with them, dwelling among them. Then you have his traveling companions. We're told that by this time, the crowd has grown to be very large. We have Jesus' disciples. We have the larger circle of his followers. But then it grew to be very, very large by the time they've reached Jerusalem. What's going on here? Why has this group grown so large? Well, John tells us the reason in his gospel. That previous Jesus was in Bethany. And while he was there, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so some of the pilgrims that were heading to Jerusalem for Passover were in the area, were present when it happened, and they witnessed it. And then, of course, word began to spread, and other pilgrims who were traveling, who met up with these pilgrims, were, were told what had happened in Bethany, that Lazarus came out of the grave, and they saw it with their own eyes. Well, they said, well, we want to travel with this Jesus. We want to be in his group. And so this very large crowd has grown as they're approaching Jerusalem. And so Jesus is flanked in his parousia, but it's not by the wealthy or the powerful or the prestigious or the elite. He's flanked by the poor, the ordinary, the unimportant, the low of society, the uneducated, the rejected, the fishermen, the farmers, the women, the children, the outcasts, the broken. They're the ones that make up his crowd as he's entering in. And then we have the announcement. As Jesus approached the city gate, the people in front and behind were shouting the words of Psalm 118. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew is once again linking his readers to the Old Testament messianic prophecy. This Psalm 118 is one of six psalms that would be recited in unison by crowds as they would be traveling 
to Jerusalem for celebrations, specifically Passover. It was one of the halal hymns. And so it's a messianic song. And they're saying, Hosanna, Lord, save us. We need saving. We need you to save us. It was a plea for God to be the salvation of Israel. The one who comes in the name of the Lord is the Messiah. The son of David is the king of Israel. And we're told that others came out from the city to join them. These were not city dwellers. We're told that they're ordinary pilgrims who too had heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, John tells us. And they join in with this other crowd shouting, Hosanna! And so the long-awaited king of Israel is about to enter the holy city. And the religious leadership are suspiciously absent. They're nowhere to be found. They're not even a priority in the story. They're not even here. It's happening, and they're not even a part of it. They've been replaced by the lowest of society. Out-of-towners at that. There's no welcome carpet but we're told that they took off their coats and they began to lay them on the ground. They began to cut palm branches and lay them on the ground. This this ad hoc, in-the-moment carpet was created to welcome the king into the city by these lowly group of people and they waved their branches in worship and celebration. What I find really interesting, it says, and as he entered the gates... The whole city was stirred. Stirred means troubled. Now Matthew records that statement one other time. In Matthew 2 verse 3. When the Magi show up in Jerusalem. And they make an announcement that they're looking for the one who is born king of the Jews. And they assume that they're going to find him in Jerusalem. Because it's the capital. And Obviously, the king is going to be born in the capital city, and so they're expecting to find the king there. And we're told that when Herod heard the report of the Magi, that he and the whole city was stirred and troubled. Why? Because Herod is not an heir to the throne of the king of Israel. He is the king of the Jews by appointment. He's not even Jewish. He's doing all the things that make the Jews happy. And so because he's doing all the things that make the Jews happy, he built them a temple. He marched in their celebrations. He faked it as best he could. And they all go, you know, hail Herod. He's our man because he's giving us what we want. I'm not going to go there, but you can add some modern-day political application to that if you want. Herod's our man. Well, Along the way, he kills his favorite wife. We should all have a favorite. He kills his favorite wife, two of his sons. He's a horrible human being. And he's starting to lose power. And now he hears that this one who is born in Bethlehem, the city of David, who is the son of David, there's a real heir to the throne. And all of a sudden, he's worried because his reign is in, is in jeopardy. The arrival of these men in this announcement is a threat, and a threat to Herod is a threat to the people because they know how horrible he can be. And the whole city is troubled by the news. 
It'd be a lot easier if this news didn't come. Let's just keep trying to do what we're doing and survive here. But no, no, there's news. They were troubled at his birth. And now they're troubled when he comes to die. Why? Because he's, he's a threat to the expectations. He's a threat to the religious establishment. He's a threat to everything that they've created in their minds that was spiritual and how it was supposed to happen. And they see this unfolding and they don't know what to do with it because it is a threat to the status quo. And we're told that the city inhabitants didn't welcome them. It's kind of like, you know what, when you grow up, it's kind of city and rural. Where I come from, it's, you know, the city is called town. You know, you're from town. And otherwise, you're from around the bay. You know, and so the people around the bay don't gather anywhere near the respect as if you're from town. Well, that's what's happening here. The city inhabitants, the ones who live there year-round, they're not welcoming him. They didn't even really know who he was. They said, who is this? Who is it? And I love the response of the entourage. This is Jesus, the prophet. Not, this is Jesus, a prophet. This is Jesus, the prophet. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is addressing Israel, and he says, listen, I want you to know that someday down the road, Israel's Messiah is going to come. There's going to be a prophet greater than me is going to come. And so what they are saying is, the prophet, the prophet greater than Moses, that's who this is. The Messiah who would come and redeem Israel, this is the prophet. And they're disturbed. They're disturbed. But there, I want you to notice there are two distinct crowds. And many of you have heard sermons, and it preaches really well, about how could the crowd on Good Friday shout Hosanna and on Easter Sunday, uh, Good Friday shout crucify him, right? We've all heard that sermon, haven't we? Different crowd. The out-of-town crowd have no power in the city. In fact, if you read the scriptures, you'll notice that once the Pharisees hit the city gates, you don't even hear about them anymore. They're rural people. Pharisees weren't city people. They were rural people. The rural people have no voice in the city. This is the city people. They're different crowds. They rejected him. And what's interesting is that Jesus' greatest victory would come after entering the city, not proclaiming his accolades as he's coming in. He hasn't even performed his greatest accomplishment yet. His greatest accomplishment is going to come after he enters Jerusalem by dying on the cross, not prior to getting there. His kingship is going to be defined by his cross, by his death, by his resurrection. And so what I want you to see here is that there's nothing usual about Jesus' triumphal entry. I would even go as far as say is, it's a misnomer. This is not a triumphal entry. He's not even getting all the triumphal stuff. Because his kingdom prioritized triumph in different forms, with different priorities. He's humble. He's a servant. This royal arrival looked nothing, nothing like the royal arrivals of his time. Nothing like it. It followed the pattern, but it was nothing like the usual. 
So what happens now? Well, after six weeks of traveling this crossroad with Jesus, there are three simple thoughts that I want to leave with us as we wrap all of this up. The first is, discover the difference. The starting point of being a follower of Jesus is recognizing and understanding that the priorities of the kingdom of God are indeed very different than the priorities of the world and the priorities of our culture. Jesus' approach was, you know, oh, you know, Jesus didn't sit back and think, you know what, I'm going to aim for the stars in hopes I hit the ceiling. You know, maybe if I can create some shock value that, you know, I can get them to move a little bit in my direction. No. That wasn't his approach at all. He's being very clear and very specific that to follow him, that to experience the kingdom of God would require understanding that what he is calling us to is very different and very necessary. It is very unusual. And he wants that to be very clear. Jesus doesn't soft sell it. He doesn't attempt to ease us into it. He doesn't try to minimize the commitment in hopes that we'll, we'll buy into it. He's very clear from the very, from the very beginning what would be required to be a part of the kingdom of God. And not only was his teaching clear, but we see his life example modeled exactly what he taught. He became the least in order to become the greatest. He achieved life by first laying down his life. He who was the king became the servant for all. He submitted to the Father's will in obedience. He was committed wholeheartedly to the task of the salvation of mankind. And so we need to become aware of the truth of this upside-down kingdom, that things in the kingdom are not the usual. We need to understand that. And we become aware of this by, well, first reading his word and hearing what he's saying, by hearing it taught by others and being reminded of it, and we, are, we learn it by time alone with him as we're reflecting on this and, and the Holy Spirit is really driving this home for us. Allowing the truth of his word to penetrate our hearts and our minds so that it in turn affects how we live. Because like Jesus, we're never called to soften the message of the gospel. It's not our place. It's not my place as the pastor to say, how can I say this in a way today that's more palatable in hopes you might accept it versus if it's a little bit more intrusive. It's not my role. It's not my job to make it more attractive to those whose priorities are different than his. The good news of the gospel doesn't need modification. Hear that. The good news of the gospel doesn't need modification. In fact, if you modify it, you will destroy it. Because we modify it to make it the same. To make it the usual. And Jesus is saying, no, what makes it special is that it's unusual. You make it usual, you've lost it. You've destroyed it. And so as believers, we need to first discover and become aware of the fact that it is different. 
The kingdom is different than our world. The priorities are different than our world. Discover the difference. Secondly, we need to embrace the difference. Because it's one thing to become aware of the truth of the kingdom, but it's quite another to receive it, to embrace it, to allow it to change and shape our lives. Folks, those who embrace the difference, the unusual of the kingdom, live different lives. That's how you can tell. It's not our job to judge, but it becomes obvious because those who embrace the difference, their lives are different. Our values are different. When we embrace the unusual, our priorities are different. Our lifestyle is different. Our marriages are different. Our family life is different. Our children are raised different. We spend our money different. We spend our time different. We use our talents different. We respond to mistreatment and unfairness different. We earn our money different. We view our careers different. We view our stuff different. We view human life and the value of human life different. Because we're living in God's unusual kingdom. Embracing God's kingdom can't be done partially, where we sort of, for the most part, reflect kingdom priorities, but we got to be continually journeying towards fully embracing the difference. Have we all got it all figured out? No, we don't. But we should be journeying towards fully embracing the difference it means as we become aware of what it means to really be a follower of Christ, not based on what the church says, but based on what Jesus says. Because let me tell you, sometimes what the church says is a contradiction to what Jesus says. And I don't want to live my life based on what the church says or the PAOC says or anybody else says. I want to live my life based on what Jesus says. That's what we're called to. And so we're journeying towards that. I'll tell you, it took me half a lifetime to get rid of the stuff that I was taught that had no place in God's kingdom and get rid of it so I could focus on the real stuff. That's just the reality. The kingdom of God is not like going to the Mandarin after church on Sunday where you walk around the tables of unlimited amounts of food of all varieties And what appeals to you, you put on your plate. And what doesn't, you pass over. The kingdom of God can't be approached like that. We embrace the difference by living what Jesus taught. All of it. All of it. And thirdly, make a difference. I'll be honest with you this morning. Making a difference has become more important to me over the past few years than it ever did in my whole life. I attribute that to getting older. I do. Has anyone else experienced that as you got older? Yeah. Right? Because we're running out of time, right? I just want to encourage you this morning. You only get to breathe so many breaths, and most of us have breathed most of them. I attribute it to getting older. You reach a certain point in your life that all of a sudden your legacy means more to you than it ever did before. The impact that your life has made on the lives of others becomes more heightened than it ever was before. 
And you begin by asking yourself, this is what I ask. What will history say about me as a husband? It'll probably be very similar to what Jen says about me as a husband. How will I be remembered as a husband? I'm not talking about at the funeral where we only say the good stuff and we all know about the bad stuff. Right? What will history say about me as a husband? What will it say about me as a father? What will it say about me as a brother? As a friend? As a neighbor? How about as a pastor? What will my legacy be as a pastor? What will it be as a teacher? What will it be as a mentor for those I've tried to pour my life into? Now, I want to tell you this morning, while this issue is important, I have come to this conclusion. That the most important issue to wrestle with as I'm aging is more importantly this. Was I faithful to serve God as best I could with my whole life? That's a better question to ask than what will my legacy be, and I believe that because if the answer to that question is yes, that I have faithfully served God as best as I could with my whole life, then my hunch is anything worth being remembered for, anything worth accomplishing, will take care of itself if I am faithful to be and do what God has called me to do. Jane Goodall said, what you do makes a difference. And you had to decide what kind of difference you want to make. Because the truth is, we're all making some kind of difference. You can say, you've made a real difference in my life. Yeah, you've made my life a living hell since the day I met you. You've made a difference, all right? Right? We're all making some kind of difference whether we're deliberately trying to make a difference or we're accidentally making a difference, we are all leaving a legacy. We are. But the question is, what do we want that legacy to look like? And I believe if we focus on embracing the kingdom of God as Jesus is asking, if we can come to a point where we submit our lives fully to him, if we make his priorities our priorities our legacy will take care of itself. You see, you make a difference by discovering and then embracing the values of the kingdom of God as both taught and modeled by Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team back. Yes, I'm finished already. I know some of you came expecting your hour. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But I want to conclude with a statement that I made when I started this message. If you desire to make a difference in this world, you must choose to be different than this world. So discover the difference. Embrace the difference. And then make a difference. Would you stand with me this morning? Maybe this morning you're here and you realize that, you know, you've lived a life that's not really aligning to what Jesus said. Maybe it aligns to what mom and dad said, or maybe the church said, but when you hear the words of Jesus, you go, yeah, I don't think I got that far with it. 
But that's what he's calling us to this morning. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it's all that matters. So I encourage you today. You won't get there in a single decision. You'll mess up before you probably get home. But you keep striving to live the unusual. Because that's where you find it. When you lay it down is where you find it. Lord, we just in, as a group this morning, declare that your name is above every name. And what a wonderful, beautiful, powerful name it is. And Father, I just thank you for this opportunity that we've had to be together as we worship you, as we look to you, as we bring you our praise, as we've received from you into our own lives, as we've heard your word, as we've processed and considered our own lives in light of what your spirit is saying to us. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to do this together as a journey, as a group of pilgrims on a journey of serving you faithfully, accomplishing your purposes. God, thank you that you've called us to the unusual, that you've set us apart, that you've called us out And you said, to whom much is given, much is required. And so this morning, as we stand before you, Lord, we don't want the cheaper version of it. We don't want the soft sell of it. We don't want the version of it that makes us feel the most comfortable. We want the version of the gospel that came directly from your lips, directly from your teaching, directly from the throne room of heaven of what the kingdom of God would require, what you've modeled in your own life. So, Father, this morning we take up our cross. We deny ourselves and we follow you. Learning every day what that means and how significant it is to even make that statement. Father, I pray that as we go our separate ways that you would lead us and guide us, watch over and protect us, and use us for your glory as we Discover, embrace, and make a difference.